Hello, and welcome to episode 263 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Brian Chuck, creator of Biggs. This is Matt. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Let's uh, start off these interviews as we normally do. We, we do two things here. We do a quick bio, we do an elevator pitch, and then we, then we jump into the interview. So if you could uh, start off with that, that would be great. Yeah, appreciate it, Matt. Um, so my name is Brian Chuck. Um, I have been running Upchuck Comics since uh, 2016. It is a um, small independent publishing company. Um, I got my start. I was an intern for Marvel Comics in 1996. Uh, I was an editorial assistant on the Spider-Man books. Uh, I was there actually right before they got into um, the Ultimates uh, so I was kind of, I was at the end of Clone Wars. So I kind of went through all of, of the editorial meetings with that. And then uh, the Ultimates, which was, was kind of designed to de-age Spider-Man. Um, but uh, I, I kind of fell out of the industry for a while. I continued um, writing. Uh, I was doing mostly journalist uh, stuff, doing some sports coverage for um, local uh, magazines, newspapers in a Dallas, uh, in Dallas, Texas. And then in 2016, uh, I got into a writing group and decided that I was going to start trying to write some comics. And so Upchuck has since uh, done one, uh, our major title is Biggs. There's four issues of that. Uh, and we've done uh, a couple of one shots um, and some anthologies. Very cool. So, uh, I'm as a as a bit of a comics nerd. When you when you threw out that you you worked at uh, Marvel and the editorial staff, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back and ask some questions about that. So '96, um, what what state is Marvel in at that point? You know, we had the speculator boom early '90s. Um, I'm feeling like this is. A, maybe a little bit before the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. So like there was a bit of like a, a low period for, for Marvel um, in the, in the mid nineties. Right. I think at one point they were very close to declaring bankruptcy or declaring bankruptcy. Um, what was it like for you in, in 96 at Marvel? Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting. So I was talking to Danny Fingeroff, who was the head of the, of the spider titles at the time. I was actually just talking to him last week. Um, and we were kind of, I don't know if reminiscing is the right word, but so I worked there at a really weird time. They had a lot of guys that had been there for a long, long time. I mean, you know, names that everybody knew as giants in the industry that were, that were being laid off. Um, you know, I kind of think it was the end of that speculative period. So I kind of call it the, um, the foil cover era. Okay. So it was right when everything was, you know, the, they didn't really do variants at the time, but they were doing foil covers and, um, but, uh, it, you know, it was, it was kind of surreal to be a student intern when you were looking at these, these guys that had been working in the industry for so long that were just kind of being let go just because nobody was buying comics. Um, you know, and that might've been one of the things that kind of discouraged me. I just felt these guys are insanely talented and they're not working. I mean, how am I going to break in? Mm -hmm. And were you going into the, the, the main offices uh, in New York at the, at the time? 328 Park. Very cool. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. So here's something interesting. So 
the way New York is built up, 328 Park is the publishing district of, um, of New York City. So DC was there at the time still. Marvel was there. Um, but you had all the, everything else was like fashion magazines. So it was like Glamour, Vogue, like all these other things. And so, you know, everybody's eating lunch, going out after work in the same places. And we would just laugh because we we're like, here we are. We are like the biggest nerds on the planet <laughs> before being a nerd was awesome. And everyone else there were these like beautiful models and like fashion people. And we're all at the same bars and restaurants and buying our coffee at the same place. So it was, that was always an interesting dynamic. They're probably uh, dressed very nicely and you guys are in t-shirts and, uh, and a comic or t-shirts with some sort of comic logo and, and jeans <laughs> on, right? Yeah, yeah. Nice. So I guess maybe the, the next logical question was, um, you know, you had that experience in the editorial staff. Um, uh, were, there, were there times where you were sort of looking at scripts or, were you, or even were you ever at sort of like, um, sort of uh, not maybe like a, like a, I hear stories about when they used to have like the Marvel retreats, but like, did they ever like call anybody, call everybody in to sit at like a boardroom and sort of break story or, you know, there's an event and you, you mentioned Clone Wars or not Clone Wars, the, the Clone Saga. Um, was there any time where you sat in a, in a conference room where some writers were like, all right, let's, let's figure out our pieces in this event? Yeah. Um, so I think some of those fun retreats and stuff were a little bit out because they were trying to just save money at the time. But, um, you know, I mean, my general tasks were, you know, we would get the scripts in, we would review the scripts, we would look for, you know, just kind of copy edit the scripts. But a lot of it is like continuity issues. And you know, this is kind of early computer era. So I mean, a lot of it is just stuff guys would be like, no, no, I know there was an issue in like 84, where, you know, the jackal did this. So this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, we do editorial, like, then we would get the pages back in, we would make copies and hand them out to the editorial staff, and we would review them and look for, you know, even the art was beautiful, you know, you, you kind of learn this process of, of finding flaws in the art. And that's kind of what the bullpen did. The bullpen would take stuff that like Mark Bagley would draw and they would, you know, go in and it would just be a little touch up. So we wouldn't send it back to, to Mark Bagley. We would just take it to the bullpen and they would just be like, yeah, you need me to redraw his foot or you want, you know, you want me to put a light post here or take out this sign, um, things like that. But you know, I got to, I was there a little bit too late to hear them kind of going over the whole Ben Riley. Um, by the time I got there, it was already pretty well fleshed out that Ben Riley, I mean, at the time, Spider-Man was going to be Ben Riley. They were going to take and say, Peter Parker, since that Jackal ep- uh, issue has really been a clone and Ben, ben Riley was the guy. There was actually a lot of debate about that. We got a lot of uh, feedback from fans um and it kind of evolved into so the thing i was kind of in the brainchild was and why i kind of say went to kind of the ultimate um universe was the main thing that they were trying to do with spider-man was what what people loved about spider-man was he was 15 years old maybe he was at you know he was in college but he was a young young guy he didn't have money he had problems with girls he had problems with his family that's what made him so relatable to everybody more so than, than any other real character. 
but Spider-Man by that time had become, you know, he was married to Mary Jane. He had a good job. He was, you know, a, a grad student that was about to be working for Tony Stark. And so the dynamic had changed. So they, they wanted to somehow de-age him or at least bring him back to that kind of single guy with regular problems. Um, obviously the clone saga didn't really pan out that well, but we started working something on something called untold tales of Spider-Man, which were, they were back into the continuity before Spider-Man did that. That title didn't last very long, but I, I, you know, a couple of years later when the ultimate started coming out, I could see that was the brainchild. They had finally figured out a way, how do we de-age Spider-Man? How do we get him back to that one that everybody thought was so relatable? And that's kind of how you had that ultimate. Now it's not, I wasn't there for the whole thing. So it's not the only reason for the ultimate, but that was the ultimate goal with Spider-Man. And so as a fan of the comics for so long, it was really interesting to see how, how it's handled from an editorial's perspective of, of, you know, fleshing these stories out because they're, they're fleshed out well before the issues come out. I mean, they're, you know, we were probably at least six months, if not almost a year ahead of what we were at least plotting out, maybe not scripted, but plotting out like what's going to happen to Peter over the next 12 months. Very cool. So one more question about your, your, your time at Marvel, and then we'll transition over to the, the, the stuff you're working on. Uh, I, th- I guess, you know, that time frame that you were, you were in and you, you mentioned, you know, you might have to take a, a piece of art to, to the bullpen. So like at this time, um, there's probably a transition from you know, digital art. Uh, so people were, t- you know, traditional art, you know, p- pages coming in on 11 set by 17 boards. So you were, were you getting like FedExes from yeah. um, artists and that must've been really fun. Did you, were you responsible for, for opening them up and, and, and taking a look at them and, and seeing them first and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I literally was, cause I mean, and it was, man, it was like, Christmas morning. I mean, we would get it. And then, you know, I'd go to the front and they'd have all the, the mail come in. I'd be like, okay, well, these, this is from, this is from Mark and this is from, so I'm opening them up, rip them open. They're big FedEx boxes. And here are these beautiful, you know, the 11 by 17s old school. We had, um, uh, you know, a, a Xerox machine, <laughs> like a literal Xerox machine. And I would make 11 by 17 copies of all the new pages that came in, I would give them to everyone in the editorial staff. And then we would all start reviewing them. You just take a red pen out and start looking at them and we'd review them. And then, um, you know, maybe we have a conference call with, with, with the artist and then, you know, make any changes that we, we had to make from there. But, uh, you know, especially nowadays when you see these like auctions for some of that original art stuff and you're just like, you know, that came across my desk. (laughs) Nice. Okay, I, I lied. One more, one more question. Um, I am so much into comics that I, I have a bit of a original art collection, and sometimes some of the older pieces that I'm able to get, the the corners are um, cut like. Um, it, and I, I I asked somebody one time, and they were like, "It's basically when they they were taping them down um, to to scan. They were moving so quickly that you know they might." just cut it as opposed to like lightly um you know pull off the tape so is that is that truly the case of somebody who was was handling those you know i know there's a better answer for that than than that because so i was taking original art and i put it right on the copy so i never taped it against anything okay but there were 
there were there was something that we did to kind of authenticate them. Um, I thought it was more like we did like uh, some sort of like like paper punch on them, but they 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 we did do some things that that marked them as maybe like viewed and original. Um, and I and then, you know somebody was asking me this the other day. I don't think we ever. I don't remember recall working for a single artist at that time where we sent the original artwork back wow. and maybe it was maybe it was done at a different time but i certainly did not was never one of my responsibilities to make sure it went back to them cool all right so uh I, that was awesome i i when ever when i get a chance to ask somebody about you know comics history or or you know some industry insight I, I always like to take advantage of that but let's let's go uh let's go forward with with your book um bigs um i've read sort of the uh the, the taglines and you know it's this meets this but why don't you tell folks a little bit more about uh about this book yeah so i mean so it it's i kind of think of it as, as a mix of um brave new world meets meets the x-men so um and so kind of where, where it started from, I always thought like, I mean, I love the X-Men, but I was like, well, if you actually had a mutation, if it was the next evolution of humans, they wouldn't have different powers. They would have very similar powers, right? A, a, an evolution, you know, a, any kind of uh, evolutionary mutation is something that the environment causes that causes a, 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 you know, either a slow or a rapid change in something. And so I, that's where I kind of thought about it. So what Biggs is about is, there's a new, um, there's a minority of babies that are being born that have this mysterious disease um, that has all these terrible health side effects. Uh, one of which is, is they, they rapidly grow to be like 10 feet tall. Um, and so it's, you know, this, this new minority, these new mutants, I mean, they stand out. I mean, they're, they're 10 feet tall. And it's so because of the, the side effects of it, they quickly develop this drug and they quickly become this like marginalized um, class of people that are, you know, it's very apparent they're 10 feet tall, but they're unhealthy. Um, they're, they're on this, they're kind of this new welfare class um, and, and nobody really knows what's going on. And it's, and it's just kind of like in a microcosm of, of a mutation, how would we, how would healthcare react to something like that? Right. Cause you can't see it in the, in that microcosm, it just looks like somebody's sick. So you would treat it as a disease. And that's where we are. We're, we, we, the story kind of opens where the second generation of, of these bigs is, is coming to life and everything has just been kind of normalized. Uh, they're going to have a low, a short lifespan. Um, you know, and everybody else kind of goes about their, their day and, you know, nobody's made any accommodations. So, you know, they drive regular sized cars. They, you know, can't use normal forks. I mean, there's just nothing gets, gets treated for them. Um, and then one day, um, this one, the, the main character, Nate Belcher, there's a video of him that goes viral of him saving all these people on an offshore oil rig. Um, and that's, that's kind of where this, this, the story really starts. It's, you know, people are wondering like, Hey, what he's doing is pretty incredible. And the rest of the bigs are anything but spectacular. So what makes him so incredible? Um, and then, you know, the, the oil industry, the pharmaceutical industry are trying to find him to kind of, to kind of 
keep the status quo and keep him silent. And then this other faction of, of bigs want to find him to see why he's so spectacular. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. And I like that uh, there's um, the, the fact that it's, it's thought out that it's like, you know, uh, this mutation is the, is the, is the same. Uh, it's it's hard to hide. You know, if you think about classic sort of X Men, um, you know, it's you're usually a, a small child. You hit puberty, and that uh, that that X gene comes out. The the power comes out, but you're still able to sort of hide and blend into society. But with this, you, you would not be able to. Um, and there seems like there's a lot of social commentary, which is also something that the X-Men, you know, going back to the, to the Stan and Jack days, um, you know, it was, a, it was a, you know, it was a metaphor for, for, for you know, for race. Um, and, and now you're sort of taking this and, and expanding upon it and um, not, and you're putting your own unique spin on it, which is, which is really cool. Um, so you started working, was this one of the, the first ideas that you were working on when you went into the, uh, to the writing group? Um, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I you know, listened to some of, uh, cause I listened to, to y'all's podcast and I, I hear some of these other guys have said the same thing. And I had somebody tell me early on, do not write some epic comic as your first time out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in your mind, you, I mean, you hear the advice and you understand it, but in your mind, you're like, no, no, you don't understand. This is the most amazing story ever. What they're trying to tell you is not that your idea isn't good. They're just telling you about the scalability and how much time it takes to do this. And so, so Biggs was my first idea. And I mean, it's, it's world building and I had never really done it. You know, I worked at Marvel, so I kind of knew the process, but I had never done an independent comic before. So everything that comes with that, writing a script and and then realizing I'm not going to be able to release this as a hundred page graphic novel in any any adequate time frame. I mean, to coordinate artists, um, you know, to coordinate letterers, colorists, um, do the editorial, send everything back, get changes made get it printed, get it, get distributed. It's just, it's really, really hard to do a 20 page comic, let alone a hundred page comic. Um, And so Biggs was the first thing I did and maybe for my own sanity and just for some other things, um, I would take a break between, like I would do issue one and then I worked on, um, I did on another one shot where I did a parody of, of, uh, Goodfellas, and then I did issue two, and then I did um, a, a comic book for um, uh, for, for kids that we. Uh, sorry, maybe must be post office postman time at the door, um, but uh, you know, then we did like um, I did an issue that we distributed to pediatric cancer hospitals. Um, that was a one shot about time traveling. Um, uh, kids that, that are fighting cancer that travel through time and then went back. So I was constantly going back to bigs and then we, f- we finished up issue four and we just kind of com- um, completed it and added some extras with some other artists we met, worked with through the time and released it as a trade paperback. Very cool. So uh, I guess one of the questions I would have, and, and, you know, I, I might be able to 
to share some of the, the similar experience that I had. What were some of your thoughts about writing uh, a story that then at, at that point it's pre 2020, but then we go into 2020, the, the world sort of, you know, has a radical shift and there's a lot of people getting sick, people, people dying. Was there anything that like, uh, changed with the in the story um you know once we hit sort of the the lockdown and the and the the realization that we had this pandemic going on was there was there anything there you know i was i was pretty far past um the kind of intricacies of so the disease in bigs they all suffer from something called bgs which i actually never named um it's a, it's an acronym but I never named the acronym because I just wanted to use the term bigs. Mm -hmm. I just thought it would be convenient, but um, I never went, I never went back and kind of did a rationalization of like, you know, pandemic and things like that. Um, you know, to me, I much more looked at um, bigs and the disease that they suffer, um, you know, as kind of that, that X-Men type quality, but really what the inspiration was, was more like um, AIDS because when I was growing up and AIDS was, was first coming around, um, we literally thought everyone was going to have AIDS at some point. And, you know, um, you know, I, I just thought, well, what if, what if they had developed a drug early on when the AIDS epidemic broke out that worked or worked relatively well enough, you know, how much more effort would they put into R&D or would they just immediately put everyone on this experimental drug and then move on their way? And that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the healthcare connotation of, of what these folks are all um, facing when, when they're, when they're born with BGS. Nice. Uh, so you, 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 you had the idea, I'm assuming you, you write, uh, a couple of scripts, uh, an idea, you, you make the decision to, to make this a comic. Um, do you, do you go out looking for, for an artist online or does your time, um, I, I'm just taking a guess here. Um, does you, maybe there's your time at Marvel. Do you have any like contacts in, in the art world that, that you reach out to? How do, how do you find the team for, for this book? Yeah, I mean, I, I purposely, especially with Biggs, and I've, I've branched the network out a lot more since I've been doing cons and, and just, you know, meeting other creators socially. But um, the, the illustrators that I used on Biggs were local Dallas artists. Um, they were guys that were into comics and had, you know, at least some experience doing serial work. Um, and I just, I just started working with, with them. Um, so that was kind of how I, I grew my network. Um, the other thing of, of like for the other books, I started developing more of a network and um, I've never really done the kind of blast, like, Hey, paid opportunity looking for someone just cause I've developed enough a network where, you know, what, what I normally do is if I have a, if I have a horror idea that I want to do, you know, I start looking on Instagram and, and Twitter and, and looking for people that are that are drawing that kind of stuff and say, oh, man, this is really cool. And then I'll reach out to them directly and say, hey, I've got this idea, you know, and I'm looking for an illustrator. I'm looking for a colorist. I'm looking for, you know, a letterer to work on this. Um, and that's kind of my process for um, finding artists. Um, I try to use as many different artists as I can 
just because of the nature of, of all of our the indie creators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really cool to see as someone that's a writer and not an artist. One of the coolest things um, is sending your script out and then them saying, "Hey, I've, I've got I've got the first four pages done. I'm going to send them." And man, when you open them, it's just so cool. Yeah, that's a that's one of the things that uh, is brought up on the podcast for for writers. It's something that sort of lives in your mind. It's in your mind's eye for so long, and uh, there's just something magical about living with that idea for so long, and then you know forming a team. Uh, creative team with somebody else and then having that turned into to images there is there is a lot of, uh, of magic there so you uh you're, you're working on this book um so it, is, it sounds like you have a, a really um you, you have like a, a team member for for basically every step it sounds like you have um do you have like a penciler possibly a penciler slash inker color letterer um, and it seems like maybe a bit of an editorial team is, is, is that what you have? So, I mean, I do all the, all the editorial, mm-hmm. um, I don't do, I don't do pen and, and ink. So they, the, the, the illustrator will usually do, um, most of the illustrators I, I'm, I'm working with, they'll do, even if some of them are doing pencil, they usually will go and scan after we approve the pencils they'll go in and kind of digitally ink. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really do like kind of traditional where somebody's doing pencils and someone's doing ink. Um, and I think, a, I think a lot of that is, is I think the, 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 the creative teams that are doing it that way is, is more just scalability is, you know, have the penciler do this and then the inker be able to go over it. Uh, I mean, that's, that's old school Marvel style where you have yeah. these like super famous pencilers and then you'd have these guys that would become their own incredible illustrators, but they started out inking, you know, just yeah. basically tracing over these other guys, incredible work. Yeah, that's very true. I feel like um, the, 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 the sort of the machine of like, uh, like a DC comics, like you'd have like Greg Capullo doing pencils. Then like, you know, he has his, I think it's Danny Mickey who usually comes in and like inks him, but that's, you know, that's such a quick, fast machine um you know a book every every month's got to come out but definitely it seems like um in the indie sphere and in smaller um production that the 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 penciler the inker is is the same person so yeah i could i could see what you're saying there so you 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 have this team um it sounds like you're you're approving pencils and inks um, are are you then turning it over to the to the colorist, or do the does the team sort of transition all of the the different steps, and you're just sort of um, looking over it? Yeah. So what what I'll do a lot is um, so I'll give I'll give them I'll give them the script, and uh, a lot of times, especially for action sequences, I I script it out pretty loosely, um, and a lot of my scripting will be like, hey he's got to get from the front of the cave to the back of the cave and he needs, and he needs to lose his shoe. Right. And so, and let them kind of do the action from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of work a little bit differently in that I'll go back and change dialogue um, and some of the storytelling based on their artwork. Um, 
I don't know if we were just doing it wrong, but it, it just kind of worked for me because sometimes it's, it's, um, it's just a lot easier to change the script around if, if the questions asked by, you know, the main character to a supporting character and they draw it a little bit differently, you can usually just flip the dialogue and have the supporting character ask the question mm-hmm. um, and have the main character answer. So I do a lot of that. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot, but it's an easier method for me. And then once I do that, um, then, you know, so we'll, we'll prove all that. I'll redo the script a little bit. Um, and then I will send it out to, um, to the colorist, have the colors do the colors. And then the last thing I do is, is send it out to, uh, the letterer and then I'll do one final copy edit. Um, actually, so the copy edit is the one, uh, is the one editorial piece that I, that I use, um, I'll use someone to, to work with me it, just because it, when you're, when you're doing copy editing for yourself on something that you wrote, there's, there's too much where your mind will kind of fill in the blanks and you won't, you know, you won't, you, there's a lot of subtleties that you won't catch. So I'll use, I'll use different people to just kind of read it over and say, is it missing periods? Does it, am I missing anything that doesn't make sense in the, in the balloons. Yeah, that's certainly a experience I've had for, for myself is that, uh, you know, I'll be in the editing stage of the copy editing stage. And I've lived with this story for so long that I will read it as it, what I think it's saying and not actually what is, is on the page. So it's definitely good to have a, have a set of eyes, uh, take a look at it. So, there, there's four issues of of bigs currently, correct? Yes. Um, so, you know, I know this from you know the materials that you had sent to me. Um, are these the four that are going to be uh, collected into the trade, or is it one through five? What's the what's the what's the plan for for the trade here? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I, when I started, as I said, I mean, and then I realized, man, this is, this is a big undertaking, but I always had the original outline was basically, uh, the first four issues. Um, although I did get to extend the story out a a little bit further because now that I was not going to do it in one big swoop, I was able to extend it out, but basically those first four issues, um, (laughs) I mean, I might be giving myself too much props, but I always tell people it's like the end of Empire Strikes Back in that this, if, if they never made Return of the Jedi, you would have been pretty satisfied. Like, I get the story, mm-hmm. but in the back of your mind, you know, they're going to go try to find Han. There's all this other stuff that's going to happen so it can continue on. But I think the one through four is a pretty complete story. Um, we, did, we did add a lot of extras because the trade paperback... Um, is is actually 120 pages long so there's some there's some <clears throat> there's some prequel information that we did uh so that stuff that kind of before page one tells you a little bit of the backstory like what was it like the first day that they started seeing these babies born what happened three years later what happened 10 years later what happened 20 years later and the way we did that to kind of expedite it is you're instead of reading a story about it you're reading like a couple of tweets that happened during that, that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't actually use Twitter and it. We use, a, there's a, there's a social media company called link. And so it's all this stuff that you see in a link and you see people's replies to the couple of images. And I had 
different guest artists do like one one image and then you see all this um all these replies to the image that give you a sense of what people were thinking in year one year five year 10 and year 20 to kind of set the 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 um you know the world before you you see the first page and then you see all the then all the regular pages go and then there's some some variant work in there there's some variant covers some some people that just did some alternate pages um you know just all the cool stuff that i'd love to see when you when you see a trade or a graphic novel where you know show me early sketches that it's that's not the same character but you know it it was going to be that character show me things like that so we we put a lot of that into it nice you answered one of the questions i was going to ask you and you know you find this a lot um that if you if you were buying singles um and then you were you you know you wanted to get a collected edition one of the benefits of that is that you do get some some extra material that you you wouldn't have gotten by um by buying the singles uh, so it, do you, do you currently have all four, um, collected in, into a trade, like ready to, ready to go? Uh, if, you know, if somebody's listening, um, they would be able to, to get them. Uh, I, I know that you said that you hit the con circuit. Uh, what's the plan for, for distributing this? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the, the trade is actually, it's ready. There's a, di there's a digital version of it. Um, there is a, uh, and there's print versions. We've already gone to printers and gone back. Um, and one of the things we thought about doing was, you know, we, we kept saying at some point, we're going to do, we'll do crowdfunding at some point. And all of a sudden we were so close to done. Um, and you know how that process gets, you just get so enthralled and you're editing, you're editing, and you're not thinking about um, crowdfunding that it's mm -hmm. done. And then we were like, well, I mean, do we need to do a crowdfunding now? It's, it's done. So, you know, the, the issues, it's, it's out, it's available. We thought about maybe doing a crowdfunding uh, just to generate some interest and maybe, you know, put it toward um, the other issues. Cause I've already started scripting um, the next four issues. Nice. So is your, is your thought process that like uh, four issues are sort of like a, like a volume, um, you know, one of the unique things about, uh, you know, telling a story through comics is, you know, there's, there's the art of the single issue. There's the art of the, the arc and there's, then there's the art of the complete story. So is, is that your, your thought right now, sort of like four issue um, chunks sort of are, are an arc. And like you said, you know, you could equate this to, you know, empire, like, so is that your plan going forward? Sort of four issues would sort of, contained like if, if I was to read issue you know issue one there's there's a bit of like storytelling to to do a complete story but also sort of leave story to continue so is, is that sort of your plan there yeah I mean I think I th I would I would want to continue putting out so as we get into issue five and six and and going forward um I would want to put them out as floppies there's there's just something kind of cool for the single issues mm -hmm. um you know there's a little bit of kind of magic of being able to um you know write a, a single issue and have it tell like you said like a contained story but have a cliffhanger to it um so i i would i would think that we would try to do it the exact same way we did this we 
we really liked it. I mean, it was cool to be at cons and, you know, see somebody, especially with how, you know, indie books take, they can take a, a really long time to do. So it was fun to go to cons and then have some guy come up and be like, oh my God, I mean, I, last time I was here, you only had issue one and two out and, you know, they're now you got three and four and, you know, they're excited to buy it and they tell you what they thought of the book. And, you know, that's, um, you know, I mean, indie publishing is not a lucrative business. So yeah. it's that kind of stuff that is just cool. It's, um, you know, like I said, seeing your artwork, seeing other artists take your word and make it, you know, into a, a medium that, that you love and then being able to interact with the fans and have them tell you what they thought of the comic and, you know, asking you, you know, like Kubrick type stuff. They're like, did you, Oh, when you put this in here, did you mean that? And you're <laughs> like, no, I didn't, but that is an awesome take on that. Yeah. That, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, so you had mentioned that you've done some, some one shots um, and you mentioned that you are, are working on uh, issue five. Uh do you want to tease any sort of, uh, you know, not giving away spoilers? Do you have any sort of one shots on the on the horizon um, that you might want to talk about in addition to, to your work on Biggs? Yeah. Um, so all of them, every one of the titles is available on Upchuck Comics, um, which is which is our, our kind of publishing branch. Um, Biggs has its own uh, website, too, but you can see all of them there. But we did, <clears throat> I did a parody of Goodfellas and it's just the, um, it's just the dinner scene where, uh, where Joe Pesci's character does the, am I a clown? Am I here to abuse <laughs> you? Um, and I, you know, I actually did that because I was working with a, with a local um, filmmaker that wanted me to help him write the script uh, where instead of them being uh, 1960s gangsters from New York, they're 1860s gangsters from London. And we just kind of used that old, like, you know, have it you, sir. I mean, just like very kind of old Englishy, um, you know, like he starts off, he goes, you know, I'm, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm laying prone in a bog when I'm approached by a Bobby, you know, <laughs> that's kind of how he starts his story. Um, and it's a little bit different because we, you know, when he's telling the story, we're able to, flashback to what the actual was happening with the police, you know, where he's just telling the story, but we go into the interrogation room and we go, um, and he, because he was going to actually, he was going to film that as a short film. Um, but, uh, unfortunately he passed away. Um, and, um, I talked to his, uh, widow and brother after, and I said, you know, Eric and I worked on this, you know, what would you think maybe putting this into a, a comic? Um, and so we, we did, we, I, I hired artists to work with, to, to draw it out. And then we, um, we actually sold it. Um, so the, the proceeds for it go to, um, a, uh, an art center in Dallas that he, that he liked to work with. So anytime we sell the issues, the, the proceeds all go there. Um, and then I did, um, I did another another comic called uh, Saving History. Um, a friend of mine was was really is really involved with um, with um, pediatric cancer. And when he heard about uh, what I was doing with Biggs, um, he was like, "Oh man, can we make a comp? Can you make a comic about kids uh, 
that have cancer that are the main characters. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. We can do that. So I actually had him work with me on it because um, he was going through his own battle with cancer. But the premise there is these kids all have cancer and we were very careful. We didn't want them to be, you know, like, I mean, I honestly, in the beginning I did, I was like, they all have cancer and the radiation gives them superpowers. And I was like, that's lame. I mean, that's like every, you know, every Spider-Man bad guy, you know, with the, you know, the alternate radiation turns them into this. Um, and the other thing was we, we really wanted the kids to, we wanted them to be very real. We wanted them to be just like the real kids that are going through their, their fight against cancer. So they don't have any superpowers and they're, they're physically fighting cancer in, in the normal world. <clears throat> but whenever they get together for their treatments, they, they, they flash back into um, some event through history and they, they help solve those historical mysteries. So like in the first issue, they travel back in time and they run into Paul Revere and they help Paul Revere do the midnight ride. Um, you know, they don't have any superpowers, <clears throat> but they, they go back in time and they, all their devices still work. So when they get there, they know, they look on their calendar and they can see what day it is. And they're like, Oh, it's September 12th, 1774. And then, you know, they help Paul Revere by literally using like Google maps. I mean, they're just like, <laughs> you know, they're like, you're going the wrong way. You know, the history says the British army is here. So they help them go around that. Um, and so that was really fun. And that one is actually in black and white. Um, and the reason we did that is we actually did it on a different paper stock uh, so that the, so the kids could actually color it. Um, and so that one you can purchase also, and all the proceeds to that go to um, a cancer organization we work with called Kids Shouldn't Have Cancer. Um, but we distribute the book. We've distributed over a thousand of them and we, we distribute them out in the pediatric cancer hospitals um, in Texas and a little bit in New Mexico. And we just give them out to the kids so they can use them. Well, that is, um, that's really, uh, great of you and really, really nice. I mean, the, the first story about you, um, working on the story, unfortunately, the, the, the other individual passes away, uh, but in a, in a, in, in, in a way the, the story gets to, to, to live on in, in another form, which is, which is really nice. And then the second story that you were talking about, there's, you know, sounds really cool. It's got a good cause behind it. So that, that's, that's really awesome. So you had mentioned your website. Do you want to, do you want to say that again um, as, as we close up? Yeah, it's uh, upchuckcomics.com. And there is there social media links, uh, the, the same sort of name branding there. <laughs> They're, yeah, they're all the, they're all the same. They're all Upchuck Comics. Uh, mm -hmm. So my Instagram is Upchuck Comics. Our TikTok is Upchuck Comics. Uh, the only one that's a little bit different is my Twitter is uh, at Bronte Irwin. Because uh, I, I do write under a, a pen name. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in the beginning, I had a ton of reasons for doing it. At this point, I just kind of think it's kind of fun and cool. Uh, but the reason that one's not Upchuck is um, I, I tweet about stuff that's not comic book related. And I just want you know, people that are following up checks, they may be like, I don't care what you think about the New York Mets. <laughs> cool. So yeah, I'm going to link the definitely the website uh, for anybody listening um, to, to go check out. Um, it's it's really cool as somebody who grew up as a, uh, a Marvel fan, uh, you know, 
any sort of take on on the x-men is, is something that is going to to get my interest so there'll be a link uh for the website and the social media um in the show notes but brian it was it was a lot of fun um talking to you um you know you have an open invitation you know more one shots come out down the line more issues of, of bigs come out we would we would love to have you back on to to talk story again uh it's it's a really cool book and i'm glad that we were able to connect here Thanks. I really appreciate it. I mean, these, these, um, podcasts are, they're, they're great to listen to hear other creators doing it. Um, it's, it's fun to, to talk with other creators and just, and just talk about the work and, and it certainly helps get the word out. So it's, it's great. Much appreciated. No problem. Well, thanks again. So for anybody listening, if you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. Um, along with the website link, social media links for, for Brian, there is going to be a Kickstarter link for, for Moss Vale. That is a book that myself and Noah, my co-host, who wasn't able to be here tonight, are, are part of. Um, if you're listening to this um, soon after the, the podcast comes out, the book will be on Kickstarter um, till March 3rd, 2022. Um, so there's a Kickstarter link for that. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter. That is at Construct Compod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod and Facebook is Constructing Comics. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Please be safe, be nice, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you.